Welcome to Growth Chat, a podcast series where we interview economists and social scientists asking about their most recent research papers and publications. The aim of this podcast is to share the invaluable work that economists, sociologists, anthropologists and historians do, making accessible to the general public and students, independently from their background and preparation. I'm your host, Marco Lecci, PhD student in Economic at Monash University, and with me, directing the interview, is Sasha Baker, Professor in Economics at Monash and Warwick University. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the latest edition of Growth Chat. Today we have uh, a new episode on a book, and this time it's two authors, the first time that we ever have two people on the show. And it's about the book, How the World Became Rich. And our guests today are Marco Yama, who is Associate Professor at George Mason University um, near Washington, DC. And Jared Rubin, who's from Chapman University, Professor there in California. Welcome, Jared and Mark. Thanks for having us. So to get us going, maybe one of you could just speak about what the book is all about. Sure. Yeah, I can go first. Um, it's So the book's entitled How the World Became Rich. And while we don't cover everything that, that went into that, what, we, what we're trying to do is, at least the first half of the book tries to synthesize mu- this really expansive literature that has come about in the last uh, couple of decades, mainly in economics, but in the social sciences more broadly on various aspects of how, well, what we call how the world became rich, but really how the modern economy emerged. And this is inherently a historical question. So we mainly focus on the economic history literature. I mean, maybe, you know, quickly before we even go into to that, we can say that the one thing we had to tackle in our first chapter of this book is, you know, is just to make the point that the world is indeed rich. This is something that I know, you know, we've had Oded Galoran as well, he's, he makes similar points that even though it might, you know, we're taping this in mid-March of 2022, you know, the world does seem to be falling apart at the seams on many fronts. On many other fronts, the world has never been a better place to live in terms of life expectancy, in terms of health, despite, despite living through a pandemic, in terms of comforts, just basic comforts that people have access to a larger fraction of the world has 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 these basic amenities, and this is something that is uh, almost certainly going to increase uh, over the span of our lifetime. This is not to say that you know we're cold-hearted and we think that the whole world is in fact rich. Obviously, that's not true. There's at least a billion people living currently that are still in pretty dire poverty. Um, but yeah, I think that what we try to do is take an optimistic tone, and you know, if we can understand how this how the world has alleviated a lot of this poverty that was the plight of almost every human being living you know, in, his, in history prior to a couple of centuries ago, we can, we can do something about those, you know, the, the, the people that have been left behind in, in, uh, in uh, the, the vast economic growth that has happened over the last two centuries. So both Mark and I are economic historians uh, and, you know, We've studied various aspects of of long run economic development, you know, between uh, the two of us, and we came together and thought, you know, there's no there's no real book that kind of synthesizes this fairly large literature, especially one that does it 
for an audience beyond a purely academic audience. And this book is very much written for a, a non-academic audience in that we certainly hope academics read it. And we do think that there are, we certainly think there are contributions, uh, academic contributions, but it's also written in such a way that it's accessible. You know, there's, there's no, no regressions, no, no Greek letters. Uh, no, uh, we, we mainly try to overview the, the major theories. So the first, after the introductory chapter, we have five chapters, which we uh, silo the, the main theories into five groups that we view as the, the overarching uh, categorizations uh, in this literature. So we have one uh, based on geography. So geography-based explanations that look at either climate, uh, how mountainous places are, you know, the uh, soil quality, and access to waterways, things like this, uh, that there is a fairly large literature on that looks at various aspects of uh, different types of geographical features and tries to relate it to growth, whether it be short-term or long-run growth. Um, one thing we note on the positive for these explanations is that unlike most, uh, most of the rest of the explanations that we, we discuss, uh, geographic explanations have the advantage of being you know, what economists call exogenous, meaning that they're, they're not the result of something that we care about. The geography just is what it is. Um, so that's attractive. On the other hand, it has a hard time explaining reversals of fortune because, because it's, it's, uh, so, uh, because it's exogenous, uh, and thus we kind of, you know, what we do later in the book is think about how these types of explanations, including geographic ones interact with other ones. And that's where we ultimately find that things like geographic explanations have the most bite. Uh, the second one we cover are institutional explanations. This is stuff that both Mark and I have done independent research on. Uh, uh, much of our research is institutional based. This is something you know, along the lines of political institutions, legal institutions, even social and religious institutions. The roles that these things, which you know, Doug, Doug North, uh, Nobel winning Nobel Prize winning economist uh, about 30 years ago called the quote unquote rules of the game. I think that's the simplest way of thinking about what institutions are. They help structure the incentives that people face in their day-to-day -day lives. And these are things that unlike geography can evolve over time. They're human made. They, they while they do not necessarily uh, immediately react to incentives in and of themselves, they can be changed over time. And, uh, there's a very, very large literature, mainly coming stemming from North. Um, and then, you know, a variety of people like, you know, Avner Greif, um, John Wallace, people like this who have, who have looked at different ways that political institutions in particular have affected uh, economic trajectories, both for good and bad in uh, various societies. Then we look at culture as a third set of explanations. Um, and here, I think it's, it's important to be clear what we mean by culture because there were, there have been, there's a long history of cultural explanations, which are somewhat maybe called Eurocentric at best. Some are, you know, frankly, like racist at worst, where, you know, there's some positive aspect to European culture. That's why Europe pulled ahead. These were kind of in vogue actually in the early 20th century. And uh, I think, you know, probably a good, you know, certainly a good thing that, you know, that academics, people, you know, historians kind of turned away from these, these types of explanations in the, the mid to late 20th century, um, in part because 
they, you know, because of their Eurocentrism for the most part. Um, but the, the turn away from cultural explanations probably went too far. And in the last couple of decades, there's been a growing literature that has suggested there's been a variety of different types of cultural influences that do persist over a pretty long period of time. And in fact, persist in some cases, even longer than institutions. And this, this literature more so builds on cultural anthropology, the way that, the way that anthropologists view culture, the way it evolves over time. Uh, and, it, and this is something that, you know, that can last generations and thus um, is seen as a source of persistence, especially when we think about why some bad outcomes might persist over time, why certain societies don't uh, adopt uh, various type of economic uh, whether they be institutions or other things that might lead to economic growth. Um, so we overview that large literature. And I should be clear, you know, these first few chapters, we're mainly just overviewing the literature. We're not, we're trying, to, we try our best to overview the literature in a way that we think the authors would like, like it to be, to be, to be presented in the sense that we're not trying to, to claim that any of these theories by any means are wrong or you know, aspects of them are off. We're just trying to say what they are and, and where, where we, um, and where necessary, show how they interact with other theories. And that's, I think, one of the big advancements this book makes in general is thinking about how these various theories interact. Then we have two more sets of explanations, one based on demography. Um, and you know, so de demographic theories are probably the old, in, in some ways, the oldest of them all. In, in terms of economic ones, they you know when the most famous uh, one, which is still widely used, goes back to Thomas Malthus, who viewed you know the 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 persistent uh, state of humankind as one being uh, living near subsistence as soon as you'd have some type of advancement, whether it be technological, political, organizational. Eventually, uh, people would have more babies. You know, you you might have a temporary time where you have um, greater income per person, but eventually you'd have more babies. Those babies would eat up the surplus. You'd go back to around subsistence. So demographic factors were a main reason keeping societies from from becoming wealthy. And this does a fairly good job at explaining a lot a, a lot of pre modern economic growth. You know, it goes up and down in spurts. But, it, but there's no real persistent growth. This is something that is unique to the last couple of centuries, and that's something we need to explain. Um, there's a number of other demographic features, such as marriage patterns um, and things like, you know, things like the Black Death, things that were major demographic shocks that have been studied recently that, you know, and where people, you know, including Mark, have tried to look at some of the long-run implications of these events. And the final one that we study is uh, colonization. And here we take uh, two different takes on colonization. The first one is to think about how, or rather to overview the, or briefly overview the literature on how colonization was uh, positively affected, mainly Europe, the European colonizers and their economies. So, you know, there's a, there's decent literature, especially this is actually more of a literature in history rather than the social sciences on the role that colonization played, especially in say the cotton economy and the cotton textiles and the and eventually industrialization in Britain. And we spend a good portion of this chapter though on the converse of this, namely what did colonization do to the colonies? Um, in some places, you know, those places that were colonized ended up succeeding such as you know, the United States, Canada, Australia. Um, in many other places, uh, they've been worse off. 
you know, sub-Saharan Africa, large parts of Latin America, Southeast Asia. And there is actually now a fairly large literature on the role of colonization, because when we say how, how the world became rich, you know, there are two things to this. One is, well, what happened in the places that became rich? And the other is what didn't happen in the places that did not become rich. So colonization might be more of a latter factor, um, even though there are, there are some argue, that argue it's the former factor as well, namely that the colonization contributed to uh, Europe becoming wealthy. Um, the last few chapters, which maybe I'll leave to Mark to explain, then try to bring this together and you know, bring these theories together and really then focus on what did happen, namely in England, and then how uh, not just industrialization, but what we call the modern economy first spread to places like the United States, other parts of Europe, Japan, and then in the 20th and 21st century uh, spread elsewhere and is continuing to spread. So uh, maybe Mark, you can take um, some of that if you'd like, or you know, obviously add, add to whatever I say as well. Um I might defer the discussion of a second part of a book to um, to a later question because I, I think uh, that, that might be um, coming up because I, I have some things to say there. What I would just add here is that we're doing two things which I think you know needed to be done in the literature and two things which make our book uh, stand out. The first is we're really orient we're orientating our argument around economic growth, and so that's almost our comparative advantage as economists. But economists understand. Um, um, growth, and we understand what benefits growth has for society at large compared to non-economists. So we understand the scale of, of economic growth. We understand that our living standards in the rich countries today are maybe 40 times higher than what we were on average, say, before the Industrial Revolution. We also understand the scale of the income differences between, you know, the United States or Australia and saying, you know, the Democratic Republic of Congo or, or, or some of the poorest countries in the world. So, so that's one thing. It's, it's a book about growth. And that's actually in contrast to the framing you sometimes see in other, in other fields. So sometimes people will talk about why are some countries rich and others poor? And in some sense, our position is poverty is, is a terrible um, but, but ubiquitous fact about the life of all humans for most of history. So in some sense, that bit, you know, it's, it's, it's tragic and you can explain it, but we understand why countries are poor. We understand why people are poor. They were poor for thousands of years, but what we need to understand is how they got rich. Um, and that, so, so, so in some sense, we don't think it's the, in, the inequality between nations that is of first order importance. It's the fact of growth itself. Um, so we, we, we orientated around that, that question. The second thing is that economists, of course, very aware of, of the fact of, facts of economic growth. They're very aware of the scale of income differences, and they've devoted a lot of time and attention to thinking about these things. But if you take um, an undergrad economics class, not an economic history class, but a regular econ class, the, the types of um, theories or models you encounter are things like the Solo model, um, named after uh, uh, the Nobel Prize winning economist of solo or endogenous growth models. And so you'll see very abstract uh, mathematical depictions of a growth process, which definitely capture something important about that process. So capital accumulation uh, and the, the vital importance of innovation and in raising the, the, the marginal product of capital. So those models have vital insights, but they also um, are pretty ahistorical. And we think that to understand economic growth, it, it, it is, we have to understand it as an event in history. Um, so that's why we've written 
uh, a book of economic history being, uh, centered around the topic of economic growth. And as Jared has already mentioned, um, we, we're, we've been part, to some varying degree, Sasha is also part of this literature. Um, we, uh, we've been part of what I would think of as, you know, fairly successful um, broad uh, trend within economics for the last 25 years, which has taken history more seriously. So if you were reading economics journals before around 2000, the top journals were not really publishing very much economic history. It was its own subfield. But since around 2000, uh, partly because of the work of people like uh, Darren Asimoglu, James Robinson, the, the ideas Jared Diamond introduced into the field, and then uh, other scholars as well, many other scholars, too many to name here, um, the, this historical, um, this historical, uh, uh, this, this historical trend within the, the, the within economics has basically blossomed. So there's a there's a tremendous literature, too many papers to read or cite now. Looking at history seriously from a lens of economics, and none of the undergraduate books in economic history, at least to our mind, fully capture that. So uh, we were both teaching economic history, um, and um, you know we were discussing the fact that there's no one book we could assign to our students. We have to assign maybe five books or six books, and each of those books was either on a distinct topic. So like, you know, fantastic books on the Middle East by Timur Quran, but that doesn't cover the rest of the world. Um, so we wanted to write a book which covered the whole world um, at this, you know, at, at a level which was accessible to the general audience, to students, and, and summarize this research. And then, um, you know, yeah, that, that's kind of, and had our, had our spin on, on how you should think about these topics um, in a way which as Jared has described, wasn't too, uh, wasn't too, what's the right word? Um, it wasn't focused around a single argument. There's no one story we're pushing. So even though we, we have our preferred explanations, we're not saying they're the only explanations out there. We're not making the type of argument where you're like, you're like a lawyer trying to acquit your, 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 um, um, your, 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 your client. Or we're not trying to we're not trying to make a case. We're not making a uh, one argument. We're summarizing a field, and we we think we do a very good job of that. Excellent. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I read the book, and uh, great job, guys. Um, now, who of you had the idea to write a book, and why did you write it together instead of one of you just went by himself? I remember having a conversation with Mark, I think it was at maybe an uh, economic history association meetings, I want to say it was. Um, and I, we're just, I think we we're just talking about this, that there's, um, there's no real book that does this. Um, one thing that I know had long frustrated me, or not, I frustrated might be too strong, but even before we uh, conceived of writing this book, is that most books, including my own, I mean, so we, I think we conceived of this maybe pro probably before my book came, my book came out in 2017, but you know, you kind of finish it in 2015. So I was probably done writing it. I don't think it'd come out yet. Um, you know, and I had experienced this while writing a book that when you're writing a book where you have to present a thesis, you really have to either ignore or place less emphasis on other aspects of the big questions that you think are right. 
So, I mean, long-run economic growth is not a monocausal event. There are many, many things that lead to some parts of the world becoming better off than others. Yes, I mean, different people are going to put different weights on those things. And that's why you write a book in some ways, too. You say, well, you know, the thing that I'm focusing on here, should there should be more emphasis on this. But in doing this, you also kind of miss out on the interactions between how various really important things like institution, culture, demography, geography, how these things interact with each other, unless that's the book, specific book you're writing. But when you really think about the broad synthesis of things, this is something where, of course, these things interact with each other. This is, we're talking about economic development or rather economic growth over centuries. Um, And this was something that I thought, I, I, I know it for a long time had frustrated me. So that was something I thought would be good fodder for a book. Um, I, I, I don't know exactly how we came to writing the specific book we did, but I remember having discussions about this. And then I think to some extent, it, it uh, went into the, the stuff Mark was just talking about, namely that there is no real book that one can assign when teaching an undergraduate economic history course. And also, you know, this is the type of stuff that at least I think, and I certainly hope, and we'll see over the next few months that people outside of academia, people that, you know, aren't taking an undergraduate course do have some interest in, you know, the, the, kind of the origins of the modern economy, you know, how, what, how and why certain parts of the world are wealthy and why certain parts are not. And, you know, you know, well, I think that's kind of clear that that's the case because there've been plenty of books written on this topic, but I don't think any book has been written in kind of thinking about these connect- connections in the way we've done it. So Mark, you can uh, correct my memory if, if, it, if it fails me, that happens often. <laughs> I also don't know, actually. I was just looking at the emails. Uh, I, uh, sometime in 2018, uh, we decided to write it, but I think we must have decided in person because we had these emails about it, presume there's an idea there. So we decided, and that's before we were contacted by um, by the publisher. So that was in 2019, sometime in 2018, but but like, but it's no, it's not, the idea must have started in person. So it, it may have been an EHA, I think you're right. It must have been an EHA because now I think, now I think about the dates, it would have been in fall 2018. We probably must have discussed it, but I think we had discussed at an earlier conference um, because both Jared and I attend a lot of the same academic conferences. So there's ASRAC, which is the um, the Association for the Study of Religion, Culture and Economics, and there's the Economic History Association. Um, And so I think we had decided to work together on something earlier, but I I assume it must have been an in-person meeting where we we decided to write write the book. But um, both of us, I think, felt that we um, could do this like we, we we could both do it um but if we both wrote this book then there'd be two competing books so we might as well do it together um and then and similarly it's it's a kind of thing where it helps to get someone else's perspective on some questions because everyone has blind spots so if you're if you're not describing just your own research but you're covering you know a, a whole field right then there's some areas where um maybe uh, I, I, yeah, I, I know less about certain topics than Jared does, um, or I, I just haven't thought about these topics for a while and I haven't read the papers recently. But on other areas, I, I, I have more expertise. And so it does make sense, I think, for this type of book especially to co-author it. And the fact that we were both teaching 
economic history courses to undergraduates. Um, at the time, I believe, at least some of some of the time we were writing this, helped helped greatly. And the fact we've been teaching these courses for a while, I mean, I I had a uh, you know built up set of lecture slides that I could think about turning into 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 materials for the book. Yeah, and I just add to this, um, I, I think you know, one thing that's interesting about comparative advantage in this case is that in terms of, uh, you know, within the broader field of economics, Mark and I are, you know, very close in the type of research we do, you know, we, we do a lot of stuff on history, religion, institutions, things like this. So you might think that, uh, you know, our, our, we, we could seek others for a stronger comparative advantage, like, you know, somebody that does demographic history or something. Um, and I think maybe to some extent that might be true, but we, we certainly do have our own comparative advantages in these chapters, as Mark's saying. I mean, we both have our blind spots, but I think the fact that we're also so close in the type of research we do made it a lot easier to kind of come to consensus on some of the things, you know, what's important? What should we emphasize? What are, what are the key interactions between, you know, these various, you know, institutions, culture, whatever, that, that we go over in the book. And I think that, so we kind of found it was a, it was, it was a very easy process writing this book in many ways. It was actually very, uh, very enjoyable process as well for that, re for those reasons. And, and, and Mark's a nice guy. Amazing. Well, you guys covered different topics here, um, demographics, uh, institutions, culture, and you work, your line of work is the same, your line of research, uh, interest and stuff. Uh, what is your favorite part of the book? You guys share the same interest? You have the same uh, favorite part or is it different? I can go first on that one because um, I, it, it follows on from Jared's earlier comments because he gave a, a great summary of the first part of the book. So the first part of the book we consider you know, the role of these um, important factors such as geography, institutions, culture, uh, demographics and colonization. And then the second part of the book, uh, we, we, we try and bring together those arguments. Now, I was going to say, in some sense, for me, I think that's the part of a book I, I enjoyed writing more. Um, so that's part two. And particularly, I think part six, uh, these are chapter seven and um, chapter eight. Chapter seven is why the Northwestern Europe become rich first. And then chapter eight focuses particularly on, on the British Industrial Revolution. And I think here it was quite. Um, quite enjoyable to write for me because there's been so much recent research and getting up to speed with all of that and trying to present it in a concise way which did justice to all that research was quite um, challenging. Um, Jared could probably confirm that these are the chapters which took the longest to write. So these are the chapters where we were kind of, you know, uh, we, 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 we took several uh, several iterations to, to kind of get right and there's a lot of restructuring that had to be done and um, there was a question as well of what level of detail you go to. And I, 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 so I, I like these chapters um, uh, to give, yeah, to give a flavor to the, to the listeners. There's always a, uh, an issue like, do you, do you talk about a specific innovation or a specific kind of individual person? Because those types of details readers can, can enjoy, they make it more concrete for readers. But at the same time, you've got to give all the you know, statistics and the data about how fast wages were going up or you know, what was happening to interest rates or what were growth rates like or what was literacy like. And so um, yeah, I, 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 I hope we got the right balance. I, 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 like, I like myself to read history. I like some level of historical detail uh, compared to 
probably a normal economist who likes to think about things a little bit more uh, abstractly. So I, I, I thought those chapters were, were good. And I felt in those chapters, we were getting to the frontier of research. So we've really, you know, obviously with publication lags, we can't, um, you, know, you know, by the time you publish a book, some of the papers you one um, one uh, sites have been updated or they've been published or there's new research, but we really, I think, do a best possible job of taking the reader up to the frontier in terms of these are the latest papers after, on, 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 industri on, on, on say, the Industrial Revolution or on these topics in, uh, in uh, economic growth. It's not like we're just surveying established papers that you would have read 10 years ago. This is, this is, um, we think we're, we're getting the reader to the frontier of a field which is actually you know, advancing all the time, which is why, why, why we find it exciting and hopefully uh, readers find it exciting too. Yeah, no, I, I, I'd agree with Mark on this. The, it's the last four chapters in particular. So this chapter seven, as Mark just noted, talks mainly about Northwestern Europe. You know, so not just England or Britain, but, you know, the Dutch Republic as well. And then what, what were some of these? We, we look for preconditions that at least for the way that those countries ended up growing, that were there, that, that assisted that. And we, we draw from those, those first five chapters in doing so. And then we look at how uh, specifically in Britain, Britain industrialized, because I think any book that really wants to explain how the world became rich does have to, does have to spend some time, certainly in Britain, but particularly in Britain's industrializing period. Then we have another chapter which looks at how it spread, that's chapter nine, so to places like the US, and also not just to the US, but even how growth emerged in England itself, because industrialization does not mean growth. Growth doesn't happen. So the Industrial Revolution it begins in the mid 18th century. England doesn't really start growing the economy on a per capita basis until the, you know, the first few decades in the 19th century. So we have to kind of make that linkage. Then we look at how it spread to you know, some of the what they call the follower countries like the US, parts of Europe, eventually Japan. And then, uh, well, we do have a final very short chapter that kind of summarizes some stuff. But really the, the final meaty chapter then looks at what happened in the 20th century and even into the 21st century, how eventually places like the, the East Asian tigers, uh, China, to a lesser extent, South Asia, how, how growth has happened in these parts. And this is, I mean, I think for very similar reasons to Mark, my favorite part of the book is certainly, certainly writing it for, you know, for reasons Mark said. And also, I think it's also really our academic contribution too for reasons that I noted before is that this is the part of the book where we really start bringing things together. Now, in some ways it's, it's not a, a conventional academic contribution in that we're not introducing new data. We're not introducing even a really a new theory kind of, and I say kind of because we are, I think we are bringing these theories together in a way that even the authors themselves, I think at least don't, do not emphasize. And in doing so, I think we are uh, formulating a, a new take on what's important. And, and really, and, and really the, the main reason why I think that this is new is that we are really focusing on these interactions. And you know, based on our own preferences, or, you know, or not just preferences, but our own, our own research, really, you know, we, we do end up focusing more on the interaction between institutions and cultural features. Um, but these are not the only ones, you know, so Mark's also done work and we emphasize this too on the in interaction between geography and institutions, for instance, you know, and in, in, in a sense, we don't overly favor 
one or the other, but we, we are noting how these things are interacting with each other in various ways. And I think bringing this together is new. And that was definitely the most, I think, exciting uh, part for, for me to kind of think through. And, and, I, and I think as any good research project um, should have is as we're writing the book, new things came up that we, I don't think we'd thought about going in, going into this. And it's not just that we, we read new papers as we were doing a literature review or something like this, but we thought about different ways in which these various features interact that were not things that I think we had in, initially intended on either writing about or certainly putting in the book. But as we, as we were thinking about it, and particularly after we, we did all the work to th synthesize these literatures, we, it, you know, some stuff becomes more, I think, immediately obvious that these interactions really are important in ways that are less obvious if you don't have a really good grasp of these literatures. Thank you. Um, as an economist, I find it super interesting. But what do you think a non-economist will find interesting? From the I can uh, have a go at that, I guess. Um, so my my view is that actually um, non-economists should should not be afraid of a book at all. They should find it interesting. But they will... Um, so, so I think they will they, they, they find it of interest. Um, the main thing I would say though is actually, I think it introduces some economic reasoning to non-economists. Um, so like, you know, the focus on economic growth, the, the you know, the, the, in, the insight, which is kind of simple to, maybe simple to economists, but not obvious to non-economists, that um, the, the world economy, the modern economy is so large that, you, you know, it, you can only explain, it, it, Zero sum interactions, so one country taking resources from another country can't explain that scale, right? Um, the role of things like trade and the division of labor, um, maybe it's obvious, right? These are, these are important sources of productivity and growth, but they, they rest in some sense on institutions. So um, thinking through those ideas, I think should be interesting to non-economists and perhaps more no, more novel. I mean, maybe maybe if you're you know if you're an economist and you you're, you're in this literature anyway, you're like, yeah, we know this stuff. And like, uh, but actually, if you're a non-economist, I think the way that these things fit together should be should be of genuine uh, genuine interest. And I think it's um, certainly if you're his, inter, into history, it's uh, you know we cover a lot of world history. We can't cover every country equally. Uh, we do cover, you know, disproportionate amount of attention on England because of the Industrial Revolution, but we do try and cover, you know, Japan and China. We cover countries in Sub-Saharan Africa uh, and, and South America. So we try and give uh, even coverage. Um, so I think there's a lot, a lot, a lot of richness for non-economists to get their hands in. And, yeah, one thing I think I'd add too, for non-economists in particular, is we we gathered not and not ourselves. We did not get the data ourselves, but we we brought together a lot of data from the literature and recreated figures and tables. And I think the in in a what I believe to be a fairly accessible way. So I think for people that are interested in kind of these these long run patterns um, and seeing how they evolved over time. We do this in a fairly in a in a fairly digestible way for non academics, non economists uh, to to really take in, and I think that this is something that that you know certain types of books like this can be dry, and I think and I really hope we overcame that um, via two ways. One is by bringing in a lot of figures, a lot of data, 
but also we really wrote it in a different way. We, I, we changed, I think our writing styles. I know I did. And I actually, I'm, I'm going to continue writing like this because I just like it better. You know, academics typically have, um, they, they write in long sentences. They write, you know, the, the, everything has to be qualified, you know, which is good. I mean, I'm not, that, that's, I think that's not, not a bad thing for academic writing, but it doesn't make for the best read either. Um, so we tried to get away from that. You know, the sentences are short. We don't use link jargon. We, you know, we only qualify things when they absolutely have to be qualified. Um, we, you know, we don't worry. We essentially, you know, the, to, to use academic lingo, we don't worry about the referees in this one. You know, we don't worry about somebody pointing to one sentence and saying, well, there's actually counterexamples, of course. And, you know, and that's actually true of all the historical um, events. There are counterexamples to everything. Um, so I think in terms of, and I guess I'm kind of answering the question, not just for non-economists, but for non-academic, I think they're the, you know, the, the way the book's written and the, 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 really the story it's telling is it, it, that's who we wrote it for in, in some ways. And I mean, and I think the, the other thing, that was, if, if we're to get one thing out of this book, I mean, I, I think if, if this book is really successful, it's not necessarily in terms of sales, even though obviously that would be great. But I think that in a, um, in a most optimistic world, this is the type of book that hopefully will turn on some undergraduates to studying economics. That's what I, I really hope would be a, a big thing to get, and maybe even economic history, yeah, this book. And this is one, and yet another reason why we'd write it, why we wrote it this way. It's, it's really hard to get somebody who is either not as into a field or maybe he's on the, on the margin of that field into that field if the writing is really dry, if it's not something they're going to really grasp onto. So, you know, that's, um, that's how we wrote the book. And that's a big reason why we wrote the book. So, you know, I, I do think that this is going, this is the precisely the type of book that should, should have very broad appeal. I have one last question and then I'll leave it to Sasha. Um, is there, so, can you name something that you learn when writing the book? One thing. I, I mean, one thing is hard. Um, I learned a huge amount. Um, one is the, the, the amazing amount of research which has been done by economic historians on, on all topics of global history. So it's really formidable, actually. And it made it tricky to summarize uh, those literatures. And, and at all times, because we, we wanted to write um, something which was relatively short, relatively accessible. So, the, you know, there are all kinds of papers we're not citing. We're, there's like fantastic research, which we could be citing and we're not. And like, it felt bad to cut that out, but we had to. But like, for example, like, you know, you end up reading about um, what was happening in Japan after the Meiji restoration at the end of the 19th century, when they, you know, reformed the states and embarked upon this process of modernization. And we find all these books on schools in, you know, Meiji Japan and how there were schools before and how the curricula changed. And you read all this work about the, you know, the early banking system there and things just like, you know, you could just go into um, a, a rabbit hole of topics, you know, issues about the gold standard and the silver standard, uh, all these, all these topics, which are fantastic interests. And, and then you have to cut, you have to cut it or you have to top, take those topics out because they don't fit the, the book. But, but really, I, I learned there's a phenomenal amount of research. Um, and this is just the flavor of it. And I, I know actually this book will um, inevitably, um, you know, it's, it's going to, um, uh, specialist scholars on some of these topics will be uh, will be like, oh, you didn't cite me, or you didn't 
go into detail on this topic and this topic is really important but um but we had to we had to leave it out but i i really had a, a new new level of respect for how much very high quality work is being done uh, by people across the world on all of these topics and uh, sometimes one forgets it one gets caught up in one's own um sub tiny subfield in academia, and you think that that is all that matters, and then you realize actually there's a huge amount of, of great work, work going on there. And doing a book like this actually meant that we had to engage with more of it than I otherwise would, and read more of it. And I also think about all the ways that this research connects, or all the interconnections and and, and um, uh, links between you know people working on the developing world, people working on 19th century economic history, on globalization, on the slave trade, all these issues. Um, so yeah, I, I really, in, in some sense, it's um, it's a good exercise to do as a, as a as a scholar, particularly I guess when, when once one already has tenure. <laughs> yeah, um, I Mark in some in some ways took uh, I took my answer. That's fairly similar to what I was going to say as well. Just you know when when we first started doing reading, uh, re just reading for some of the background for this, especially some of the chapters on. Uh, topics I was less familiar with. So, you know, the institutions chapter, for instance, I felt fairly comfortable, even though there's so much work that you start going down some of these rabbit holes and you realize that everything you say can be qualified in 30 different ways. You know, the culture chapter was similar. I, you know, I kind of know that literature, but again, but then there's a chapter like the demography chapter, not something I work as much on. When you start reading some of, you know, you, know, you kind of know some of the classics or, you know, some of the more recent, uh, big, bigger papers. But then you start going more deeply into, you know, that literature, you know, in, in part just by seeing what is cited in these papers. And, and yeah, I, you get kind of on the on, on the one hand, you get a little blown away in terms of how much high quality research is being done. But then when you really start to internalize, it, you say, well, OK, we need to include this. We need to include this. We need to include this because these are all making really important points. And I think, you know, what to what Mark was saying, the, the book is about, I think it's 225 pages or something like that. It easily could have been 400 pages if we if we really wanted to get into the weeds of some of some of these things. Um, because I mean, I you know, we have notes of uh, tons of stuff that we never ended up using. Um, so I think in terms of stuff we learned, certainly just, you know, obviously we read, we we read a lot of in a lot of different parts of the economic history literature that we were not as familiar with. I think in terms of, you know, stuff that we did though, besides just reading, it's is really, you know, as we've kind of already mentioned now a few times is for the sake of this book, unlike any work I've done elsewhere, I, I and I believe we really had to think deeply about how these different theories interact with each other, again, in ways that the authors themselves do not do not make these connections. Like, you know, for somebody like, you know, Joel Moikir, you know, very, 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 you know, probably arguably the most famous economic historian in the world right now, whose work we cite a lot, you know, a lot of his work does both impinge upon and is impinged upon by work done on stuff well outside of the type of stuff he's talking about, you know, namely, you know, largely the institutions literature. He, he discusses institutions, but, you know, a lot of the type of preconditions that we discuss in this book are not the types of stuff he talks about. So, and, and I, and I should say, like, I, I think that, you know, and I hope that uh, when talk, when discussing this book with him, he would not disagree with how we characterize the, the, the literature in its relation to his own work. 
Um, and these are things that we, at least I, oh, I can only speak for myself on this. I had not really thought about that deeply prior to reading this book. But when you when you write a book or, you know, or an academic paper, frankly, even teach something, you really have to think a little bit more deeply about how these these various phenomena interact with each other. And I'm hoping that in writing a book like this, it will trigger others to not just, you know, think about these specific connections we made, but, you know, make, make other ones as well. And that 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 a at least a, a, a new type of literature might, it probably won't be a, a full literature, but a way of thinking about these different phenomena can, you know, will be more accessible to, um, to, to uh, economic historians and others. Yeah, thank you. You already said you would be uh, delighted if uh, undergraduate students were drawn into economics or economic history, maybe even finally a high school kids. But if you think about the general public uh, who has their studies left behind them, um, which group do you think would benefit most from reading the book? I guess it's more um, I can maybe I can start with this. I mean, I I, I certainly think. Um, Okay, so there, there's a few. I mean, one is, you know, the, the group of people that, you know, fairly large working in NGOs, working in um, poor, poor parts of the world, mainly from the Western perspective, um, because, you know, in, in not certainly not all cases, but in a lot of cases, um, I think there is a, a misunderstanding, but a, a you know, there, there's two things that I think could be emphasized more. In, in such work, one is the role the role of history, um, the the role that specific his, historical events have played in making certain types of things work or not work. Because maybe I, yeah, one thing we actually haven't discussed as much here too is that this book is very much not saying that history is determinist. Things that were unique to England, and all we're saying, is, you know, when we look at England, we say, look, there are some things that have that England had that were good for economic development. That doesn't mean though, that they're going to be good for economic development elsewhere. And it's because of these interactions. So, you know, a specific kind of cultural background, for instance, meant that the types of institutions they had worked well for economic growth in a certain certain place. If you're looking at, you know, uh, Mark mentioned the Democratic Republic of Congo, for instance, um, uh, very different cultural uh, attributes, even within the country. I mean, it's hugely heter heterogeneous within the country itself. So different types of things are going to work given different types of cultural attributes. That's the type of you know, general thing that I think can be taken away from this book that, you know, that context matters, history matters. And then it's you know, when we, we say why it matters, we give some reasons why it matters. And so I think that people working in that part of the world hopefully could take something from this out, you know, again, as you, you asked, outside of the people we've already discussed. Um, that's just one set of people that comes to mind. I don't know, Mark, if you have any any other types of. Uh... I think it's a tricky question, Sasha, because the the audience for nonfiction books is actually quite small. Alas, I wish it was ten times larger. So, um, and and um, I mean, of audience of of, of people buying nonfiction books, apparently only a small proportion uh, apparently read them. At least that's what people claim about Thomas Piketty's book. Uh, capital in the 21st century, but uh, most people who bought it didn't read it. So I hope people who buy this will, uh, will read it. Uh, the, uh, the, the main, I, I think, you know, anybody interested in 
how the world has got to where it is now should should be interested in this topic. Now they might find that the book is slightly different to some other you know approaches to these questions. We try to make it a non ideological book, so we we try and like we're, we're open. And we think we, we think growth is good. Okay, so we think economic growth is is on on net good, and we we think there are a lot of misconceptions about about growth. Um, but you know, like it inevitably comes at the, co at the cost of environmental degradation, or you know, there are trade-offs between growth and other things. We we think actually, if you think if you think about growth as economists think about it, then then then, then growth is good. But we but other than that, we, that position which we we set out right away in the intro of the book, we, we're not trying to push um, one theory over another, nor are we trying to tell a story where yay England the West is great. Or nor are we trying to say that the West is evil. It got rich solely by exploiting the labor of people in developing countries and therefore reparations are owed. We're, we're not really interested in those types of questions. We're really interested in like, just how did this happen? So like, if you're curious about how it happened and um, you wanna know what the academic literature says about this, but obviously you don't have time to read, I don't know if, how many papers are in our reference list, but let's say 200, 300 papers, um, you can read this one book and that will, will synthesize a lot of the arguments for you. So I think people who are interested in finding out about how the world works um, should be interested in our book, we hope. Yeah, I fully agree. I definitely enjoyed reading it a lot. So I hope many of our listeners will uh, pick up the book too and read it. I urge you to do so. Now, my final question uh, that I also asked Odette Balor as we spoke to him some weeks ago, is do you think that all cultures perceive growth the same way? And the background to that is I recently traveled through Australia and uh, I came past lots of areas um, where Aboriginal uh, people live and uh, on country and many of them um, consciously decide to live in their ancestral lifestyles. And it's not clear whether they would want to participate in the growth as we perceive it. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I guess I can, I can start with this. I mean, I actually think that, so you asked, do you think all cultures perceive growth the same way? I actually think you could replace growth with any word. And I think the answer is no. I think that, you know, at perception, when we think of, when, so the way we've been thinking about culture in this book, and it's the way cultural anthropologists think about it, is it's, it's perception. It's how the world works. It's the types of values that, that a society has or that a, you know, a cultural group has. And I think, you know, to your specific question with, the, the, when, with respect to growth, this is, I mean, I think very clearly something in terms of how desirable it is, what it, you know, what it might be able to do for that society, uh, that, that this is clearly something that's going to differ based on not just cultural past, but you know, the lived past and the historical past and, and how we got, got to the point we are. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's, it is a really interesting question. And it's, I mean, I think it's, and especially in the context that you provided where, uh, you know, when we, when, especially when we consider society or at least cultural groups that are not as plugged in to what you know you might call the modern economy, it's you know I think on the one hand maybe not obvious as to some of the benefits it has, but also maybe some of the downsides. And Mark did mention it, even though we 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 clearly think in this book, and we stated at the beginning that on net economic growth is a good thing. 
there are obviously downsides. And you know, some of those downsides might be, you know, for, for different cultural groups, might be more, uh, more important. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's a good question. And I think in, in general, when we think about, you know, just perceptions of all sort, sorts of phenomena, whether they be economic, maybe political, social, you know, uh, things like this, that this is actually one, one of the key takeaways from this book is that you know, the context matters, the historical past matters, and a lot of that is embedded in culture. It's also embedded in institutions. You know, to a lesser extent, it's embedded in demography. Um, but th this is something that, you know, to go back to the answer of the question, uh, you know, the, the previous question, when we think about you know, the developing world you know, and people working in the developing world, what, what can be done, you know, local context and the historical past, I think, really matter. And it also matters for what can be done and what might work, what might work to achieve growth. And certainly in a society, and, you know, I, I don't know to the extent, say, you know, Aboriginals in Australia view this, but to the extent that uh, uh, there are cultural traits which view economic growth as something that's undesirable, then even if, if, uh, the goal, you know, from an outsider is to increase the, the ultimate, you know, access to maybe certain aspects of the modern world, whether it be vaccines or things that, you know, elongate one's life. That's a, it's a challenge. And, you know, knowing, knowing what might work or what, what, what worked in early 18th or early 19th century England, you know, maybe you can take some of the lessons, but obviously not all of them. So I think that, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting question. I don't know if you have any additional thoughts, Mark. Yeah, I, I don't have a great insight into this question, I think. I don't know um, too much about the Aboriginal communities in Australia, but I do think that um, in any society, there's some people who kind of opt out. They're in the United States, they're the Amish, of course. And so they're always, some, and there's some in, at the individual level, not just at the community level, some people who want to opt out or opt for a slower life. And um, as economists, you know, everyone's preferences are good, right? So our assumption is that you know you, what you like and you know your preferences. So if your preference is for a simpler life, I, you know, as, an, as a social scientist or economist, I'm not gainsaying you at all. What I would say is that um, there's a selection effect going on that the, the people you're observing, right, in these Aboriginal communities are those who've opted for that lifestyle. And you don't know the numbers who've opted out of that lifestyle. So many people would have opted uh, to come to the city or to or to or to integrate with the economy, even if that comes at some cost. And so um, I think there's definitely variation across cultures and within societies about people's preferences over that. But I think that um, we should be wary of thinking that whole cultures or whole societies would want not to have growth. So you know that's kind of a, seems like a patronizing assumption that we we should uh, you know we've moved beyond and should avoid. Um, in these, in many, most places we see, people want the opportunity to better themselves materially, and there are some benefits from economic growth that no one, you know, no one in their right mind, I think, would 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 turn away, um, and, and and some costs as well. So individuals can make that trade off. I actually just to end end on this, um, I think non-economists sometimes make, make make the point that economists are obsessed with maximizing economic growth. Um, and maybe I've given that impression in this interview, but actually we care about satisfying preferences ultimately. And so economic growth is a means to preference satisfaction. Um, and some people um, will clearly not want to be as integrated in the global economy, um, and that's fine. 
Thank you so much both. I enjoyed uh, being together with you for an hour as much as I enjoyed reading the book in the last few days. So thanks a lot for joining us. And I can only hope that many people pick up your book. It's going to come out in the US in the next few days. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks again. And hope to see you soon face to face. Thanks, Thanks, Mark. Thank, thank you both. Thank you, and thank you, Sasha, for running the interview. I'll see you at the next one. Thank you.